Should we do it? It's all we need. Yeah, let's do it. It's all we need. I've got the uh, the Dodgers in the background. We're ready to go. Nice. How do we do this? Wow, this is weird. Okay. We've never done this before. Yeah. <laughs> this is very strange. Um, hey, everybody. Welcome to a Tuesday episode. Look at that. We're doing another Tuesday episode. How exciting. Um, Dan, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good, Jack. I'm good. Uh, we, we've just gotten off the back of having a great conversation with Bobby. Bobby Wagner. Oh, yeah. yeah. Bobby Wagner of Tipping Pitches. <laughs> yeah, how are we going to do this? Uh, yeah, Bobby Wagner of Tipping Pitches. Um, if you don't know Tipping Pitches, it's a very awesome uh, socialist baseball podcast, which we love around here, folks. Um, and we talked to him about uh, basically about those two things, about the socialism and about the baseball here on this monumentous day, which is game 162 of the regular season. We talked about collective bargaining agreements. We talked about unions. We talked about... Uh, minor leaguers not getting paid. We talked about predictions for the World Series. Um, you can explain simply to me. I was a bit, right. un, as a novice, uh, <laughs> or as someone who doesn't know anything about baseball, I was a bit unsure about how, um, what the relationship was between the collective bargaining agreement and why. Was it just that when it when it runs out, then there won't be any, it will be indicative of the, the the owners refusing to negotiate with the players' association unless some agreement is reset. Yeah, why, I mean, pretty why, much. Why is that going to lead to strike action or <clears throat> the possibility of a strike in Major League Baseball? Um, yeah, when it's currently well, not a possibility. Yeah, I mean, there are things that the players' association wants, right? The players' union that they want to get changed in baseball, and there are things that the owners want. They want to make more money, <clears throat> and the players also, I mean, want to make more money as well, right? But the difference is, is that like the things, well, okay, yeah, obvious. This is just basic labor negotiations stuff is the things that the owners want is they want to be able to exploit their players more and they want to make more money off of, you know, TV deals, et cetera, et cetera. And basically like their interests are pretty opposed at certain points. Um, and if, you know, the collective bargaining agreement only lasts for a set amount of years and when it expires, they just have to renegotiate. So when we talk about like there could be a strike, that's just because the players won't get what they want, basically. But in reality, what that means is that the strike is coming from the owner's side because the owners are actually withholding whatever work they do, basically, mm-hmm. to just not have sports. So basically, so. the previous collective bargaining agreement has set the relationship between the Players Association and the owners for the past mm-hmm. six years, was it? And now it's yeah. inspiring. There is no relationship until a new one can be struck. Exactly, yeah, because they have to have an agreement between the owners and the union, and uh, it's looking, wow, that was pretty dismal. You'll hear here hear in a bit, dear listener, what uh, Bobby has to say about if the collective bargaining agreement is going to, uh, if they're going to let it expire or not, and if, if there will be baseball next year, but it's pretty grim. So, mm. uh, yeah, what do you think? Do you think that, that that was worth listening to as a socialist, just to hear, you know, here's how uh, the capitalism affects my daily life? I think so. Yeah. I think it was great. I think it was a great conversation. I'll say to the listener now, like, I'm mostly in the background of this, not asking anything. <laughs> this is uh, Jack's episode in a lot of ways. Jack's yeah, moral support. Talk about baseball and uh, <laughs> keen to listen to people talk about baseball. So I was basically a listener to this conversation. And um, as, an, as a listener, I thought it was uh, very enjoyable and thrilling. And I learned a lot. So very exciting. Uh, very I exciting. hope everybody else enjoys it as well. I do pitch in a little bit later on with some. Uh, uh, beginner questions. But, uh, He'll jump out at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He'll scare you. Um, it, was it was good. I'm really pleased. Yeah. And uh, uh, our immense gratitude to Bobby for coming and doing it because he didn't have yeah. to. And um, we appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Go check out Tipping Pitches. It's a great podcast if you like baseball and you're kind of sick of the uh, typical, you know, we're old men and we like baseball and those people play it the wrong way because they're Cubans kind of attitude that uh, is so pervasive in baseball. Um, and it's cool to hear baseball and socialism be mentioned in the same breath so hopefully our listeners like this one it's a bit different to what we usually do but um still important nonetheless so uh without further ado go listen to tipping pitches bobby and alex and uh in the meantime here's our interview biggest pitch of the year here for the mariners three and two bases loaded c-shack the pitch base hit All right, I think we're going here. In theory, we should just be going. Um, before we start, can you tell whose bobblehead this is up here? I don't know if you can from very far away. I I can't, although it, it looks a little bit like it has a mask on it. 
It does not have a mask on it. It has a very large beard. He was a Dodger for one year. Do you know who that is? This is your trivia. Uh, I don't. No, I don't. It is the beard. It was Brian Wilson. It is the only bobblehead that I own. So I, I was going to ask that. He was actually a Dodger for a year? I, I a Dodger. him only as a giant. Yeah, I think understandably. He was a Dodger for one year. We paid him $10 million that he got hurt. And it was like, he pitched against the Giants for one game. And everyone was like, well, that was worth it. And then he got hurt. And it was just like, um, oh, there's his career. At least the Dodgers can afford that $10 million. Yeah. That's it. You know what? Honestly, Everyone's talking about how, like, the Dodgers are the evil empire now. But you know what? At least they're spending yeah. money. Honestly. Yeah. Like, I get it, but at least they're the only ones spending money. I Alex feel like, they, I, okay. Alex and I I'm just like, going to say... I, I, ourselves into the Yankees a couple times because of that exact reason. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's a little dangerous. I'll be honest. That's yeah, a little dangerous. No, I, know. I know, I know, I know. I think the real evil empire... You're the, you're the Mets fan, right? Yeah, you're not the A's fan, okay? Cause I kind of feel like the real evil empires are like the A's and maybe the Tampa Bay Rays of the world. But you know, yeah, we just we just did a whole rant about the Rays actually on the episode that we just <laughs> recorded that's coming out tomorrow. I respect that. I like that. Um, well, speaking of your show, uh, do you want to give our nerdy, portly, uh, Marxist, beautiful listeners uh, kind of just a little intro to what your show's about, to tipping pitches and who you are and kind of just about a little bit about the show. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, Tipping Pitches is a baseball podcast, ostensibly, but also we talk a lot about sociopolitical issues, labor issues um, within the world, the wider world of baseball. Um, it didn't start out that way. I think that it started out mostly, um, you know, with the ethos that we wanted to do a show that seemed fun because a lot of the baseball shows that we were hearing seemed like, whether they were, you know, mired in statistics or whether they were like mired in more of the old timey, like play the game the right way kind of ethos. Like we, we just wanted to do something that was like fun centered around the pop cultural aspects of the game. So over time it's blended to be a little bit more about labor issues, sociopolitical issues. Um, but I think that it still maintains that like intersection of pop culture that we really care about as baseball fans that make us love the game so much. Um, you know, we do it once a week, so we're not like uh, we're not like obligated to react to stuff when it happens in real time or like do breaking news episodes or anything like that. So it gives us a little bit more creative freedom to talk about the stuff that matters the most to us. And it just so happens that over the last couple of years that has become more and more labor oriented. Um, mm. But I think that it was sort of a natural growth. Like we didn't set out with the intention for the show to become that way. Um, mm. But you know, baseball is one of those sports where labor issues and sociopolitical issues come up so often um, because it has so much, you know, history with those with those subjects. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, like, that's kind of one thing I wanted to ask you right off the bat is I feel like your average person would perhaps hear that you're doing a podcast about like or even just talking about like labor relations in major league sports kind of be like who cares like all of these people are like trillionaires and you know they're right. all like you know i think you know they're all like they've got it made so why would we care so i mean yeah. could you talk a little bit about like why it is actually important and maybe like why we do need to care yeah for sure um well first i will say that elevator pitch sounds awfully boring but i think it out <laughs> and i make it fun um we crack a lot it's a of great jokes. show it's a great show <laughs> we're very sarcastic um we it's, it's light-hearted even though we cover a lot of heavier um more complicated topics um but i i think that that's a really good question it's a really hard question to answer jack because we have found ourselves often trying to avoid the millionaires versus billionaires question but it is <laughs> the way that so many fans filter their understanding of labor relations is like, why should I care? There's a bunch of spoiled millionaire players who want X, Y, Z. And then there's a bunch of billionaire owners who don't even seem like real people in society because they're not. But <laughs> I think that it, something that Michael Bauman, who is a co a coworker of mine at the ringer, I'm also a podcast producer there, but he's a coworker of mine at the ringer. We brought him on at the beginning of 2020 to do an annual state of labor in baseball podcast. And something that he said, which has really resonated with me when people ask this question or when this question comes up on the show is it's kind of like what your boss is doing to you just on a larger scale. Yeah. Throughout all the numbers 
and you want to talk about it in terms of fractionality, in terms of proportions, it's very similar to what bosses try to do throughout all industries. And then that's not even to say anything of the fact that like minor leaguers are actually being exploited on the level of gig workers and you know certain service workers and hospitality workers like these guys are actually being paid below minimum wage in a lot of cases or right at minimum wage for only five months out of the year so though these issues seem a little bit high concept at times when we're like getting into the nitty-gritty of a cba i do think that the underlying themes that we try to approach these conversations with are at least relatable for someone like me who is in a union or for someone else who might be considering trying to get into a union or start a union. Um, and so if you can get over the fact that it is a small um, subsect of workers, baseball players in America, it's a very, it's not, they're not exactly <laughs> like us, but if you can get over that fact, you can start to see a lot of similar themes um, and, and start to relate it to the real world, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think you hit on two pretty important things. One, which is like, it is just labor relations and it's the same thing. Like there is literally no reason for owners to exist in baseball. Like obviously under capitalism, it is kind of a bit of a necessity, I suppose, but it's like in you know reality, there is no reason for these people to exist and we give them too much credit. But I think you hit on the kind of more important thing that I'd like to talk about, which is the minor leagues. Um, so could you speak a little bit to kind of how the minor league system is set up in major league baseball kind of why it's a little bit more exploitive exploitative than something like the nba um and kind of what it's like just being a minor leaguer um in today's system yeah um that's a really interesting question why it's more exploitative so the minor league system works a little bit different in baseball because um, it was founded in the 1940s and 50s by a guy named Branch Rickey, who's like a famous baseball executive, um, or at least he was the one that popularized it within Major League Baseball. Um, it basically exists as a feeder system to the Major League Club. So if you draft someone or you sign someone um, before they can make their debut because the competition level is so high and the learning curve is so steep in baseball, they send you to different levels, whether that be single A, high A, double A, triple A. And all of these minor league teams exist as independent financial operations. So they, the clubs themselves are not owned by the major league baseball teams. Now, the, the, base, the MLB teams license their player contracts out to go to these minor league towns and play for these minor league clubs, but only because they need these teams for development purposes. They need somewhere for their players to go play actual baseball and face competition and you know, ostensibly get better. And they staff all of the coaching, they staff all of the players, but they don't staff any of the like operations of the minor league clubs. So that is the disparate landscape that we're working with. There's like a bunch of different businesses who have different interests and everything that make up the minor league ecosystem, that make up the minor league economy. Um, you know, the life of a minor leaguer is that it's exactly that you get drafted by a major league team, you achieve your dream or you get signed by a major league team, you've achieved this lifelong goal, and then they send you when you're 18, 19, 20, whatever age you happen to be when you get signed, um, they send you to a kind of random town throughout anywhere in the United States. And if you're not a guy that was drafted really highly, you very often don't get a very big signing bonus. You might get as little as $10,000 and then you might be paid as little as $8,000 for five months of work and then no money for the rest of the year. So yeah, well, let me just pause on that for a sec real quick, because you say it's like for five months of work, but it's also like, you know, you're expected to maintain your body and your shape right. to be at like, you know, a world-class level for the entire year. Right. It's not like you just, exactly. Oh, right. No, I'll go back to like my day job or whatever for the other, you know, however many months, you know? So, and I think that there's a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of, there's just momentum from how they've done things for so long. Like it didn't used to be a 365 day a year requirement for you. If you were a minor leaguer in order to develop, but now it is because we know how we know so much more about athletic development. We know so much more about training. And so they're asking these people to work for entire years and they just can't afford it. If they're only being paid for five months out of those years, which is what the uniform player contract, which is what dictates labor relations at the minor league level 
the uniform player contract says you only have to pay, you know, $500 a week to these guys and you have their rights for seven years after you draft them. And, you know, they're exempt from antitrust laws so they can collude with each other to keep salaries down. It's a whole myriad. It's like a very complicated web that they have built, but all in all, there's a lot of momentum against these minor leaguers. So the average, I mean, I encourage people to read a lot of the reporting that has come out in the last year or so, or the last 18 months or so. Um, about the experience of being a minor leaguer and about making this little money and being sent to a new city, trying to find housing um, when you can't even really get approved for a lease, making so little and not proving that you've been making it for the entirety of the year, if you're going to sign a 12-month lease or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I've gone on a long diatribe and might not have answered all of your questions, but for, for the specific question of how it's different than other leagues... I think that something that you have to understand about baseball is that it takes guys longer to get to the top level. So in basketball, you might go to the G League, which is their development league. You might go for a year or in your rookie year, you might just be on the team and you might be the best player. That's just the nature of basketball development. Guys affect it at a younger age. And in baseball, it can take three, four, five years to get up to speed, literally, in order to be called up to the major league team. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you hear all the horror stories about like guys, you know, like who've been in the minor league circuit forever and they kind of get messed around by the owners of like the actual major league teams for when they're going to get called up and you hear horror stories about them, like, you know, stay having to stay in a room with like five other guys and like sleep in that room and like, or sleep in their cars or, you know, like the food that you can afford is just like crappy fast food. And it's not really helping you like stay in shape or anything, but it's interesting because like, you kind of find this pervasive mindset, I think, among like major league players, which is changing, I think, with guys like McCutcheon and and others, I suppose. But like you you kind of find this this attitude that's really similar to like Wall Street bro attitude, which is like, hey man, you just gotta grind. If you wanna make it to the show, you just gotta grind, bro. And you just gotta like get through that like horrible decade of your life and somehow survive and you know, or whatever. And it's like man, that is such a poisonous, like, I don't want to sound basic or whatever, but like such a poisonous like capitalist myth. It's like the only reason these people are grinding is because of the horrible system of the farm leagues, right? Like it has nothing to yeah. do with like, yeah, I heard you guys say something on your show about like, you know, how many, I think you use the example of Jose Altuve, but I'll use a different example, say perhaps Mookie Betts. How many like Mookie Betts is have we lost just because like, you know, they just couldn't hack it or they couldn't afford it, right? Yeah. It's like, this has nothing to do with utility of like producing actual good players. It's just about exploiting the people yes. so you can make enough money. I mean, I think that's a really good point and something that we've talked about a lot. There's basically no proof that there's any correlation between having to grind and creating adversity and actually succeeding in the future. I mean, if that were the case, then, you know, like Vlad Guerrero Jr. wouldn't be good because his dad was <laughs> Vlad Guerrero Sr., who's a Hall of Famer, and he had a huge signing bonus and everything, but he's also the best hitter in baseball right now. Like, There's just no... They pick and choose examples. People who have that mindset, people who purport that mindset, pick and choose examples to prove why grinding is good. And the adversity of having to go to a different town, play against entirely different players in a different place at a different competition level than you've ever had to face in your entire life, that's adversity enough. Um, and... I personally think that there is a much more compelling argument on the flip side of that, which is if you provide these guys security, if you provide these guys housing, if you provide them livable wages, good food, good nutrition, that will ease some of the anxiety and stress and free them up to actually become better at baseball. Because so many guys, um, as a guy like Kieran Lovegrove, who is a minor leaguer in Houston with the Rocket City Trash Pandas, who has been, <laughs> it's just an absurd name. I I realize that not everybody's like used to these names, but that's the name of it's a the trash pandas, team. sir. Yeah, it's, Rocket City. <laughs> yes, it's the name of a minor league team associated with the Los Angeles Angels. Um, but he has become sort of the face speaking out as a current minor league player for some of these issues. And you know, one thing that I think is really striking about his story is that he struggled with a lot of mental health problems. And I mean, there's been plenty of research done about how you know financial insecurity housing insecurity can affect your mental health in adverse ways and it's it's pretty easy to draw a line between minor leaguers having that same experience and then you know really struggling mentally with 
not just how good they are on the field, but also just how they're progressing through their early 20s, which is a really hard time to be living your life and entering the workforce. And it's obviously not like the rest of us, but it is sort of characterized by all of these same societal and capitalistic forces. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I, I heard you guys too talking about, um, this might've been a while ago now, but it was the kind of controversy. I hate that this is even controversy, but like where there were a couple of minor leaguers who were wearing, and even major leaguers, I suppose, who were wearing um, what wristbands to show their solidarity of like, hey, things could be a lot better. We're kind of being exploited like a lot and we're making all these people a lot of money. It'd be really nice to get paid a living wage. That would be really cool. Um, and that somehow turned into a controversy. Could you speak a little bit to that? And like why that was controversial? Yeah, so I think um, I don't know, to understand this, we have to go back a little bit. Um, there has not really ever been outward displays of solidarity from minor leaguers in terms of trying to fix conditions up until the, really the last couple of years. Excuse me. Um, and and one of the one of the driving forces for that is an advocacy group called Advocates for Minor Leaguers, who is um, a group of people who are trying to change the conditions or bring awareness to conditions. Um, It was founded by a bunch of former minor leaguers who lived this experience. And what they do basically is the, they help players understand, you know, what the experience is going to be like. So they have realistic expectations. And then also they talk to players and they share their experiences. And they, when those experiences are incredibly awful as they often are, they share that so that, the public and the fans can put pressure on these major league teams to treat the minor leaguers better. Um, they have grown a lot in the last year or so um, in the pandemic. They've done a lot of honestly like investigative reporting into how major league teams have been treating their minor leaguers with regards to COVID safety, with regards to healthcare, with regards to housing and a lot of different things. And so they organized a protest um not really even just like, a, I don't even want to say protest because it's not like the players were refusing to play or um, it's not like they walked out of the training room or anything like that. It was literally just they wore wristbands like Livestrong style that said fair ball <laughs> to bring awareness to fans who might have been attending that game or to any media who was covering that game about how they felt that they were being treated wrongly at the minor league level. These working conditions were just untenable. So advocates for minor leaguers organized that protest in a minor league game between a Mets affiliate and a Phillies affiliate. And then it came out what you're referencing, Jack, it came out a couple weeks later or about a week later that Phillies coaches and executives sat the team down and said, Hey, this is not the right way to do this. Um, and they deny, they deny that they disciplined these players, but I mean, we've all been in meetings where like <laughs> they say that they're not disciplining you, but they're really like, they're they're elbowing you a little bit there but you'll be fired wink yes exactly (laughs) and minor leaguers something that they really struggle with is job security too because they know that they can be cut for any reason they're not big earners they don't have any protection against being cut and it's really hard once you get into the slipstream of getting cut from one team one organization you get a reputation for a guy that gets cut a lot doesn't want to hang around and then, or, or the team doesn't want them around for whatever reason, even if that, that's an incorrect characterization, um, it can really change the trajectory of your career. So guys are truly terrified to speak out. And these minor leaguers did. Um, and of course, the Phillies immediately tried to shut it down because the longer you let a fire like this grow and burn and get more oxygen in the media, people talking about it, not just people like me and Alex, but in larger me and Alex on tipping pitches, my co-host who had to be absent today because he's attending game 162 for the Yankees. Um, is he actually? Oh my God. When you were, yeah, he is. Oh, he's, right. an ace man. he's an ace man, but he got an opportunity to go and see, and the Yankees might have an epic meltdown. So it'd be cool. Oh my God. We can, one can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, but not just people like me and Alex talking about it, but places like ESPN, places like the athletic adding oxygen to this fire and adding gasoline to this fire in some cases. And, I think the Phillies have a lot to lose. I, every team has a lot to lose. The more awareness that there is of these teams like, and how they're treating their minor leaguers, the, the more public sentiment will just continue to move away from management, which, as you know, makes 
management very uncomfortable because they realize that this is a losing battle for them. They realize that no public opinion is never going to be in their favor if all of the facts are laid out on the table. I mean, they are literally colluding against some of the most vulnerable workers in their entire uh, labor landscape in the Supreme Court to get antitrust exemptions so that they can continue to pay them less and less and less. And no matter what PR spin they put on it, they know that the more people know, the more minor leaguers are vocal, the more we're headed towards a world where minor leaguers can talk about these things openly, which gives them a better chance to organize and unionize. And the more we're headed towards a fan is like, this is unacceptable. You, you should not be doing this. Because every fan that I know who knows about the conditions, and granted, this isn't my own social circle of like lefty people, but even people who are not like me who care about these issues the more people know about this it's a basically a hundred percent disapproval of how mlb teams handle the minor leagues yeah and i mean like you can literally talk to anyone and if you show them exactly what you're saying if you show them how these people are actually treated they'll be like yeah that is bad owners have a lot of money people doing labor have no money that's bad um and when you, you tell them specifically when you tell people how much money it would cost to fix this it would cost yeah. like 10 million dollars to pay everybody in the minor league system $50,000 a year, which is like 10 times what they're making now and not even that much money compared to how much labor value they have towards the entire system of baseball in America, but would be enough for them to, you know, eat and feed their <laughs> families and uh, pay off student loan or whatever it might be. And $10 million to an owner is nothing. It's a rounding error. It's a reliever that you saw. It's Brian Wilson. For- it's literally Brian Wilson in the last year of his career. <laughs> So it, it's just so obvious, and I, I understand why the Phillies immediately reprimanded their players. I was a little surprised at how quickly they did it because the story was like still out there in the ether. And if you deny, it's a little bit sort of like a, wow, thou doth protest a little too much what's going on here. It like piques the investigative journalist's interest and that kind of thing. But, you know, the teams are, I think teams and owners are very afraid of their minor leaguers organized of course speaking collectively as all owners of all companies yeah that play workers are exactly and i mean i yeah the owners are not creating much value i'll say that yeah. so I, you you brought up the kind of like more people are starting to talk about the minor leaguers and stuff and you are starting to see some like real legacy media types talking about it if for no other reason than that it's like the hot new thing at the end of the season right. or whatever um do you, do you see kind of like a sea change coming? Like, I know that your guys' kind of tagline is, you know, unionize the minors, unionize the minor leagues. Is that, mm-hmm. like, how is that how far-fetched is that? Like, because obviously there is a Players Association, a union in Major League Baseball for the top-level guys, for the guys actually in the show. Um, stunning that there isn't one in the minor leagues. Do you see that ever happening? <laughs> um, I, it will happen. It will definitely happen um, as long as like the heat death of the universe doesn't come first. But <laughs> I'm not qualified to talk about that. <laughs> um, it, it will absolutely happen in the same way that y- there will be a lot of fights over unionization at Amazon. Like there, it's only sure. a matter of time because the conditions are so exploitative that they necessitate it. Um, I just think that it's a it's a very uphill battle. And it's just going to happen in the public, like just because it's being talked about more and more and just because more places are writing about it, um, advocating for it in some cases, it doesn't mean necessarily that it's like imminent because it's, it's a very hard from a practical perspective. It's a very hard organizational challenge because these guys are at different levels. They are employed by different teams. They're in different states, in different cities in very small cities they are the i think the biggest challenge is that they're only at a certain place playing with guys for like a month at a time sometimes so if you have like five guys in a minor league clubhouse who are you know let's say a de facto organizing committee for what might become the minor league uh baseball union all the people that they're recruiting might get promoted to double A next week. And so, well, and, and, yeah. And who's to say that the owners wouldn't just do that intentionally, right? It's like, oh, this guy's causing trouble. Let's just trade him to the or great like loons or whatever. Yeah. Or, or just cut him entirely because there's nothing that says really that you can't cut him. I mean, you're obviously not allowed to fire people for 
union activity in America, but I, it's not like the Labor Relations Board has ever really come down on the side of workers in a meaningful way uh, for a while now. And so that, that's, that's a little bit harsh. But you know what I mean? It's, like, it's not like they're going to go sure. out of their way. If, if the owners basically come up with a bullshit excuse as to why they cut a player, even if it was because they were organizing, is if there's no paper trail of them doing that, there's no way to prove it because guys get cut all the time, every day. And for yeah. any reason, even if it, even if they're playing well, they can get cut. They can, they can just sure. be cut because there's not enough space on the roster and they want to bring in a new person. They think that that person has a better chance to succeed at the major league level or fill an organizational need or whatever. So, you know, to your question of, do I see this happening? Yes, absolutely. There will come a day when there will be a vote for a union in the minor leagues. Um, do I think it's close? No, because infrastructurally, there's just a lot that needs to happen before then. And there needs to be some sort of outside body that is helping advance that. Because from within the ranks, it's just very hard for it to grow organically and for players to both focus on improving as a baseball player, which is a very hard thing to do, and also improving their working conditions. It's just, it's, it's frankly just too much to ask players to do all at once. And mm. so it's just going to take a lot of time to, I think, lay a foundation for all of the housekeeping stuff that comes with trying to form a union, for lack of a yeah. better phrase. Well, I almost wonder if it's got to come then from, like, the actual major league guys, you know? Like, they've all been through it, you know what I mean? Like, they all know how yeah. crummy it is. It yeah. kind of sucks that you would have to rely on, like, empathy. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know. They're the, they're, yeah. you know, I don't know. And it will come down to somebody withholding their labor, I guess, just depends on who it is. Right. I, so I'm less optimistic for the MLBPA striking in order to support minor leaguers because they're, they're not members of that union. So there's not as much of a, there's not as much of a legal defense, you know, there's, there's not as much yeah. of a historical precedent in the labor fight between the MLB and the MLBPA for the MLBPA to be striking over something that they're doing to non-union members like there's that's never happened before and so much of labor and cba negotiations is about precedence so they really would have to strike and say include these minor leaguers in the next round of cba negotiations and that strike could last a year could last two years the owners really don't want this so it could require them giving a lot and so i do almost think that the path at least from where it looks like now is minor leaguers to create their own union and for major leaguers to basically stand in solidarity with them, stand in their defense. Um, And whether it's like, they're basically like sister unions, the way that like the writers guild has an East and a West and they're not exactly the same, but they are, you know, they do stand up for each other on similar issues. Like whether it functions like that, I'm not really sure because there's no precedent for any of this stuff, but it would be so, so hard for the the Major League Baseball Players Association to add those minor leaguers in just because of what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation about minor leaguers, how much owners don't want this. And CBA mm-hmm. negotiations at this point are basically just about sussing out how much the other side wants something and how much you're going to have to give in return to get that thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, I guess that kind of brings us in to the like looming horrible thing that nobody wants to talk about, which is coming up at the end of this year, which is the end of the collective bargaining agreement between the players association. And I suppose just major league baseball or the owners, or I'm not exactly sure how to phrase it, but um, nobody's talking about it because it's really, uh, it's been an awesome year for baseball and really cool things are happening. And today is like the most insane day of baseball I can remember, but like, What's going to happen? Like, are we going to have baseball next year? Or is it just going to get shut down? Man, I <laughs> don't know. I, I asked Alex this last week on the show. I was like, we've talked about it every, you know, like six or so weeks. We just do a, a check-in with how we feel about the upcoming offseason and the CBA negotiations and, you know, what we're kind of expecting to happen so I asked Alex to go on the record about it last week. I was like, do you think there will be a work stoppage? And he was like, I think that there will be if the parameters for that are, will they have a new CBA by the December 1st deadline? I think that's almost definitely no. I think that they will either extend the terms of the current CBA for three months and try to get it done before the start of the next season so that no baseball games get missed, 
or whether they will just be operating without a CBA because there's no games being played, so it doesn't matter quite as much. Um, I don't think that they will get it done before December 1st. I think that there's basically like a less than 1% chance that that will happen. Sick. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so we are heading into not uncharted territory because there have been multiple work stoppages in baseball just because of the nature of the, the fight between the players and the owners. Um, I... I go back and forth on this all the time because on one hand the owners have it made and so they they have no reason to jeopardize that you know that history of making so much money in in the last two decades they have no reason to jeopardize goodwill they have no reason to complain about how much money they've been able to make and how much their franchise values have gone up and all of these benefits that they have just by nature of having had enough money to buy into this antitrust exempt um, (laughs) industry. But at the same time, I mean, they continue to ask for more and more and they just continue to try and undermine the players association. And so the real issue has been that in the last two, three years, there hasn't been a lot of, there there has been a lot of confrontation over free agent spending. um, And they are trying to solve that problem mainly um, trying to solve a problem where players get paid not very much for the first six years of their career relative to their value because the teams own their contract for those first six years so they can decide what to pay them with certain parameters, but they can decide what to pay them basically. And then they are free agents after that point and they can shop themselves out to other teams to get deals um, with no limit on those deals. It can be as much money as they can possibly negotiate for but over the last five, six, seven, ten years, those free agent deals have been drying up, more or less, um, for lack of a better phrase. And the, the bigger stars still get their big contracts, but the, the kind of middle tier of 30-year-old M- M- MLB star does not get as much money as they used to because owners are wising up to how players don't perform as well post-30, and they're just refusing to give that money out. And so... The Players Association is trying to solve for that problem in that they're not making a lot of money earlier in their career and now owners are saying, we don't want to give you a lot of money later in your career. And they're saying, hey, what the hell? We have no opportunity to actually recoup our value as workers in this industry that you're telling us is like free market capitalism, but certainly doesn't feel that way. It feels like we're being colluded against. And so they're trying to solve that. And that's a really big existential question to solve. Um, there are a few things that the owners want in exchange for something that would be more favorable to, to the players, like expanded playoffs, meaning more teams make the playoffs, meaning more TV revenue for the playoffs, which is bad for competitions, bad for fans. But I can see players being like, well, if it makes us more money. And these are these you know, existential forces that affect the, the, the game just by nature of the fact that owners are there leeching off of it, um, yeah. which is which is why Alex and I have advocated many times to just nationalize the game, just have the municipalities claim eminent domain over all of the teams, and, and then open up the books, elect different control people, open up the books, and um, and then you know players can still make their revenue or whatever, the same as they always were, but the owners would never would not be a factor in that equation anymore. That would be standing as an impediment to actually enjoying the sport but obviously you know politically speaking we are very far away away from anything like that. it's right around the corner nationalizing <laughs> baseball is right around the corner i can feel it i mean Why that brings me into and then nationalizing the, the mlb teams now. no all or nothing <laughs> that brings me into something that i'm interested in in terms of like what can actually be done now right and like and when i say now i kind of mean like under capitalism, right? Like what can be done to make the sport better, more enjoyable, like under capitalism. And I mean, it is so insane that the commissioner is just an employee of the owners. Like that is so like, it's insane that owners exist. It's insane even more so that the person running the league is just like their bosses are the owners and not the players. It's like, here's a crazy thought guys. What about if, what about if the, the commissioner was elected by the MLPPA? Or like, you know, hey, what about the fans? What about that? That would be really cool. I know that that, like, the owners would, like, scuttle the ship before that happened. But, like, there's something cool. There's no need. I feel like I didn't even know that, like, the commissioner was 
just an employee of the owners for a long time. But I feel like that's just something people just don't really kind of realize. And so it's like, oh, when Manfred does all of this stupid stuff, when he shows up like drunk to give Corey Seager his MVP trophy, it's like, he doesn't really care because then, like the players are going to like hassle him. You know what I mean? It's like, right. he was literally bought in just to, you know, deal with the upcoming CBA in yeah, the I, favor of the owners. I think once you, once your perspective on that is honed into focus and you realize that he's actually literally just an owner stooge like he's literally employed by the owners and they would fire him if he did not do their exact bidding i think that it's very clarifying because you start to understand i mean rob manfred this is literally a guy who negotiated cbas for the owners before he became the commissioner that was his job he was the ownership side labor lawyer in cba negotiations and he was really good at it he won the owners very favorable terms and they rewarded him with the commissioner role and since then, um, you know, he talks about himself as like a technocrat. Basically, he's like the technocrat commissioner who wants to like make tweaks to the game that make it more efficient, make tweaks to the game that like the zombie runner, which everybody loves right, that make it more appealing to younger audiences. Ostensibly, I don't know why we think that Rob Manfred is the guy who understands younger audiences versus like any of these players who are actually the ones appealing to younger audiences. That's a whole different conversation. But the youths loved them, loved the loved the corn game. Everybody loved the corn game. Right. I thought it looked kind of cool, but that's a whole different thing. It did, you know, okay, it did actually look cool, but the whole, like, you know, it, they didn't it need to come man- out of the corn. Yeah, a manifestation of uh, MLB not realizing that their demographic is actually old people, <laughs> but also still playing to that same demographic. Like, they didn't exactly. realize that young people didn't care about that, is a long way of saying it. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean... You know, to your question of can we get a commissioner in here that will be better for labor relations? No, definitely not. We could get a commissioner who's better for on-field product, uh, one that understands it better, one that uh, will actually listen to and, um, you know, embody the values of people who have played and loved the game their whole lives. Like to this question of does Rob Manfred actually love baseball? He talks about it all the time. He's like, I'm the biggest baseball fan in the entire world. I'm like, well, then why are you shooting all over the sport all of the time? That's a really weird thing to do if you're a big baseball fan. Um, you know, a former player would be great. We've advocated a few times for someone like Curtis Granderson. We've advocated in the past before I worked with him for someone like CC Sabathia. Now I know he has absolutely zero interest in doing that. But, you know, someone like that, Ken Griffey Jr. is currently a an advisor, a consultant for the commissioner's office for on-field play for competition or something. So he basically makes recommendations as to how rule changes will affect the sport. I think things like that can improve on-field. But in terms of labor relations, it the only way that it will get better and that owners will not continue to exploit it is to, you know, get rid of them via eminent domain. <laughs> get rid of them. Okay. Uh, okay. Or, I understand. Or, you know, more effectively organize the MLBPA. And I think we've seen a little bit of that in the last couple of years. The, the guys who have been here for a longer time, guys like Max Scherzer, guys like um, Colin McHugh, guys like Sean Doolittle, these guys understand the power of solidarity they understand the messaging that is required to be such a public facing union last year during the um during the pandemic and when they were negotiating the terms to come back and play it was very clear to anyone who was paying attention that the owners wanted to play as few games as possible because they were going to get paid the same from uh they were going to get paid the same amount of money from their tv contracts as long as they played 60 games or more and which is hilarious and they knew that it was going to i guess cost them more money to play more games with no fans in the stands to actually like pay the workers to come and do that even though it wasn't actually going to cost them anything close to something that would threaten their bottom line really they were going to take a bigger hit during one calendar year when they've been making record profits for the last 15 and they didn't want to do it And it was obvious to anyone paying attention that they were trying to play as few games as possible, which is shitty. That's a shitty thing to do because then they wouldn't have to pay the players as much because the salaries are prorated to how many games that you actually play in a season. And fans really wanted to watch it. If they were going to be able to bring it back in a safe way, I think there was a lot of people out there who were like, it would be nice to have sports as a distraction if you can do it in a safe way with the right testing and the right distancing and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I still think they came back way too early, obviously, because the pandemic proved to 
last the entire year and there was a lot of positive tests all the way up until game seven of the world series <coughs> Justin the world Turner. Series. <laughs> right exactly and the players came out with messaging that was like just tell us when and where we'll be there yeah. we want to play we will play 162 games if you just tell us when to show up and that's really effective union messaging because the public is like cool the players are ready why aren't we playing oh the owners don't want to play so i think stuff like that and social media campaigns over things like salary arbitration which is where the teams come in and tell you you're not worth any money at all here's what we're going to pay you and then the, the players are like actually i think i'm worth this much and then you have a neutral arbitrator decide how much the player should actually make um, it's the perfect system right that's the thing that actually happens um <laughs> They've united over stuff like that in a more public way, using the benefits of things like online organizing, using the benefits of veterans who have very favorable opinions with fans as being the face of these things um, in a way that I just think the Players Association was not interested in doing between the 95 strike where they organized very effectively and got a lot of wins. And and basically 20, you know, 15, which is when the last CBA was negotiated. They've been losing a lot in negotiations since then, but in the last few years, I think they've really started to turn the tide around. You know, different societal factors change whether or not they'll be able to win at the bargaining table. Um, there's a lot of big question marks about, like, what is the future of revenue when it comes to TV contracts and that kind of thing, and how much of that can the players get? But just in terms of, like, union hawkishness, it's gone up in the last couple of years, which frankly I think is a is a good thing for a fighting union like the MLBPA. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know we have game one six all the all of the games of one sixty two about to start here in a minute. Um Dan, did you have anything you want to ask? I know we're kind of just talking about baseball and <laughs> that's about it. Yes, as a British person, this is some total novice to this. I've no idea what's going on. It's been really thrilling to listen to you both chat about it though. I hope it's something. <laughs> Uh, too disconcerting having me hanging out without saying anything. No, not at all. Um, maybe you could explain to me why today's series of baseball games is so exciting. Either of you. I've yeah, sure. It, so. Uh, so MLB has the lowest percentage of teams that actually make the playoffs of the entire crop of uh, uh, of the total teams in the league versus other sports like basketball and football. Um, only 10 out of the 30 teams make it in Major League Baseball. Um, that's three division winners and four wild card three division winners in each league and then two wild cards in each league and so very often um the races come down to the last day of the season for who will actually make the playoffs so because there are so few spots there are multiple teams vying for them particularly in the american league side of the bracket there are four teams vying for two wild card spots and basically what they do in game 162 out of 162 will dictate whether or not they get to play in the playoffs in a few days. So you play six months of a calendar season, you play almost every day and it all comes down to one game. I've said this before, but from my perspective, American sport does drama so much better than uh, <laughs> British sport seems to kind of thing. Yes. But in terms of fairness, <laughs> I think that, you know, 38 games or 39 games they play in the Premier League, right? And and then they relegate the bottom three. That seems sure. like the most fair in terms of competitiveness. And I think that it pushes teams to not want to be relegated. In, in American sports, we frequently have a problem with tanking and anti-competitiveness. And, you know, you've seen that really blow up in the last decade. And in a lot of ways, that manifested as, as anti-labor. If you have 10 teams that are literally stating before the season, we're not trying, then why would they go... <laughs> Bid competitively for guys who are free agents and then you start to see that's why some of the free agent market had dried up a little bit you can you can draw you know a direct correlation and maybe correlation isn't always causation but i mean to me I think there's a pretty clear case that it is causation in this instance and is that yeah. worse in baseball than it is in other sports in the u.s because like there is the, the franchise model kind of thing and the lack of relegation is the case across american sports but yeah, I think, I, mean, I don't know, Jack, do you think tanking is worse in baseball? I think it's probably the worst I, in basketball. Yeah, but also like in a sport like basketball, you kind of just need to pay one guy, one superstar, right. and you can probably make the playoffs, <laughs> right? Like in baseball, you can get the best player. You can get the two best players in baseball, in fact, and still suck. So I'm not that I'm talking about any team in, in specific here, but, you know, yeah, other team. 
I think um, I think the problem in baseball is slightly different than basketball. I think the basketball teams, they tank their way all the way to the bottom because if you get one superstar player at the top of the draft, you can change your whole franchise around. And I think that's a very enticing concept for general managers, guys who runs guys who run these teams. I think in baseball, the problem is a little bit more acute. I think it's that teams are either completely tanking for a few years so that they can keep salary down while they don't see a competitive window for themselves, or they're in a, like a perpetual on the fence and they pay, like they keep their salary um, totals in like the middle tier of the league. And then at the trade deadline, they sell all of their best players away and then they tank. And so you never, you don't get as many teams that are going all the way in competitively and spending up to the different luxury tax thresholds and therefore creating more competition, creating more excitement for the fans because when there's nothing more exciting than when your team says we're all in, we want to win. We want to win the world series this year. And there's almost like no teams doing that anymore. Maybe like three teams that do that on a year by year basis. And I think that that is what's bad for the sport in terms of, in terms of tanking Um, that you don't. And, and, Yo, go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. Well, I was going to say that you don't get more teams who are just like our chips are in the center of the table. You know, money be damned. We have plenty of money to to afford these players, and let's just lay it all out there on the field and let the players decide it. I think so often there's a sort of uh, there's like a restrictor plate on the competition of these different teams, and they only want to spend you know mediocre amounts of money comparatively to the rest of the league. Yeah, and also like. The worst thing, conversely to kind of what you're saying, is when the players are like, we're all in, baby, we love it, and then they all get traded, and the owners are like, we are not all in. We would like to see you all fail. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, sec, awesome. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I suppose before we go watch some baseball, uh, do you have any predictions on what's going to happen tonight? What's going on? First of all, the most important thing is the NL West, of course. What do you What do you think is happening there? Um. Wow, I would love a game 163 in the NL West. Oh, my God. Uh, Basically, Could you imagine how horrible that would be for Giants fans when it's like, <laughs> wow, you've had like an incredible season and you've been able to carry it for 162 games and then the effing Dodgers come back and that would be so good. I'm on the record as anti-Giants. Um, good. Whether, whether that just be because I talked to myself into that early in the season or whether that be because I have something subliminal with them, them eliminating the Mets in 2016. I'm a bit of a psycho <laughs> fan. Um, I'm on the record as anti-Giants, so I would actually like them to lose, like the Dodgers to win, and for them to have to play a one-game playoff in 163. But um, I don't know. In terms of other predictions, it's so hard. I don't even want to begin to predict the AL wildcard picture. I, I, my <laughs> World Series pick, which yeah, I did on a, on a show that we were we did a hit on a couple days ago, I picked a rematch of 2017 Dodgers-Astros. Which, oh no, I couldn't take that. I mean, it's just going to melt down baseball Twitter <laughs> because these teams hate each other and there's obviously so much bad blood over the sign stealing stuff, but in terms of drama, I'm all here for it. And I really actually think that those are the two best teams in their respective divisions. I think the AL has been pretty bad for the most part. I think the I mean, I think the Rays are slightly overrated, but we don't really? need to get into we don't need to get into oh. specific individual team, but I do you think that the Astros are flying a bit under the radar? I think that they have the best lineup and the best offense in the entire AL side. And then the Dodgers are just, I think, far and away the best team, even though they are a game behind the Giants somehow. But in terms of their roster, in terms of their run differential, everything else on the metric side of it, I just think that they're the best team. And so I always want to see the best team at least get a chance to win in the World Series. Now, when it gets to the World Series, I just root for the best games possible if I don't have a particular rooting interest. Um but I, I would like them to at least get there so that I can see all of the best players on the best team get the chance to show their medal, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I uh, I would like to see the Dodgers make it, but I just feel like it. I feel like they are going to have to go to the wild card, and I feel like St. Louis has been, I don't know, like praying to Baphomet or something. Like, I don't know what's yeah. going on down there, I... but... We say know. we say often about St. Louis devil magic, but this year yeah, well, has yeah. truly been some of the most devilly <laughs> underworld magic of any with what they've done. But uh, I also would like them to get eliminated. Hey, that'd be good. That'd be very <laughs> good for them. Yeah. So I would. Yeah, I would say I'd like to see the Dodgers make it, and that would be ideal, obviously. But I, I feel like we're gonna get the most boring matchup possible, which is San Francisco and the race. 
And it's just going to kind of be like, all right, well, I kind of don't really want either of these teams to win. Yeah. So it's a real know. let them fight. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Don't really know how I'd be rooting for in that instance. Although I think yeah. I have more to lose if the Rays win a World Series because I have been vocally against their ability to win the World Series because they refuse to spend. I mean, they're they're in the bottom five of payroll every year and somehow still put a winning product on the field, which is a testament to their player development and their player scouting. But, you know, at least for me, it's more of an indictment of the fact that they refuse to spend more and go over the top and put a team on the field that will definitely <coughs> compete for a World Series, definitely have the ability to beat the Dodgers once they get there. I think that they were just outclassed by the fact that the Dodgers had way more players who they chose to pay more money in the world series yes. last year in 2020. Like, I think that that was truly the difference. And so I don't, I don't think that I could stomach it. If the race, <laughs> it would add to the Wander Franco lore. That's true. For sure, but that would be about winning it in his rookie year. Yeah. That would just be stupid. Yeah. Um, he's a wonderful player. So much fun to watch. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll see what happens tonight. I'm, I'm going to be on the edge of my seat. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, all right. I guess I don't really have anything else. We can bury the hatchet and say that I apologize. I, I think about this a lot, honestly, whenever the playoffs come up. Apologize for Ruben Tejada. I think that was pretty <laughs> messed up. I think that was pretty bad. I think about that a lot. Because I, I always like the Mets, and then it's always like, but Mets fans probably don't like me. So yeah, you know, do? It's okay. It's okay. The, the Dodgers-Mets is not like a serious rapper anymore. It truly was more Mets versus Chase Utley. I don't think that anybody <laughs> carried over any like bad blood to the Dodgers in general. It helped that the Mets went on to win that series. I think if the Mets went on to lose that series, it would have been potentially more controversial in the future. But I don't have any bad blood towards the Dodgers. In fact, I frequently go to Dodger Stadium and root for them. Excellent. And you pay $35 for a beer, I'm sure. I do. It's actually $20. 20 really Is it actually? For one beer. Yep. Oh my God! Seventeen seventy-five right. plus tax. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Well, I suppose I think the only there's one more thing I just wanted to say, which is that for our listeners, like we we really wanted to talk to Bobby, I guess, just because this is like a real concrete example of how capitalism like really affects all of our daily lives and how it makes the sports bad. Um, and things are probably not really going to change until we, I think, get rid of capitalism. Like I hate to say it, but like. This isn't really a problem of like Rob Manfred is such a jerk or, you know, like if we could just replace Rob Manfred or if we could just get some better owners, there's no reason for owners. There's no reason to produce for exchange. We need to get past it. The only reason I want socialism is so we can have good baseball. I think that's all I wanted to say. (laughs) That's a good tagline for our podcast. Maybe we should start using that. Um, No, Thank you you for having me. This has been fun to talk about. um, Of course. And where can people find you? themes more directly yeah you can find us anywhere you get podcasts it's tipping pitches you can find us on uh twitter tipping underscore pitches where we you know we tweet a lot about anti-capitalist stuff but we also just tweet fun funny baseball stuff so you can follow the twitter account without listening to the podcast but i strongly encourage (laughs) that you give it a shot because like i said at the beginning when i was giving my elevator pitch for it it's not um you know it's not really like academic the way that we talk about this stuff we do try to crack as much jokes we do as many jokes as possible we do try to keep it lighthearted um and and accessible for all people who maybe agree with a lot of these things but don't quite think about them that often um i think that that is sort of the listener that we're aiming for so yeah tipping pitches on on anywhere you get podcasts tipping underscore pitches on twitter and you can buy we talked a lot about unionize the miners we have merch um that we sell in different baseball inspired logos um that says unionize the miners and all of those proceeds go to a 501c3 nonprofit called more than baseball and those guys who are wonderful we've loved partnering up with them um and and they've been really you know generous in coming on our podcast and about talking about the work that they do but more than baseball they basically put together stipends and resources for minor leaguers who need money for housing money for food money to support their families and they're able to redirect some of those funds so you asked me earlier you know what what can we do that isn't just to get rid of capitalism this is like direct action direct support kind of stuff so in the interim you know we're trying to do the best we can so you can buy unionize the miners merch and the proceeds from those will go to more than baseball which will make you know donations at the end of every month that we do um that we sell and they're sick shirts they're awesome 
You can also buy a, a hat that I'm wearing right now that says no billionaires in baseball, which is just, like, <laughs> oh, that's just so people know, you know, just so people know your stance. I wore this one at Dodger Stadium last night. Just so people know, I don't want any billionaires in baseball, including the Dodgers billionaires, even though yeah. they spent, even though they spent, we can still get rid of them. Yeah. You didn't get anyone who was like, I like the billionaires in baseball, actually. No, no. <laughs> I guess I'm just not that approachable, you know? I guess no, people don't want to come <laughs> up to me and argue about socialism during this seventh inning stretch. But uh, I, I, I look forward to the day that someone does want to have that dialogue. It's coming soon. Thanks, guys. Cool. Hope. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much, man. And like we said, check out Tipping Pitches. And uh, good luck, man. We'll see you around. Hey, everybody. Sorry my audio sounded like shit on that one. What are you going to do? You live and you learn. Uh, The music that you heard this episode, of course, one and only King Giz and the Liz Wiz. The song is called Music to Eat Bananas to. Go check it out on their band camp. Kinggizzard.bandcamp.com They rock. Thanks again to Bobby coming on um once again go check out tipping pitches at rocks it's one of my favorite podcasts um go buy a shirt a unionize the miners shirt or even better no billionaires in baseball hat it all rocks it's all great goes to a great cause um yeah i think that's about it let's go dodgers am i right am i right folks